Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani Albob. This month, we are super excited to be joined by one of our delightful colleagues from University of Helsinki's Global Development Studies. Osi, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us who you are and what you do? Sophia and Chris, it's good to be here. I'm Ossi Ollinaho, Ossi I Ollinaho, as I write in articles. Well, I used to say that I'm a young guy from Northern Finland, but I'm not sure if I'm any more any of those. But so I call myself maybe an interdisciplinary scholar as well, this kind of a transitional scholar, because I've been changing from quite long distance in terms of academic fields from industrial engineering and management to global development studies, perhaps two poles in terms of capitalist critique or stance towards capitalism. Uh, I've been doing research now since some 15 years, defended my dissertation over 10 years ago. Thank you so much. One question that I have is you mentioned that you have been on two different poles of kind of capitalist critique. How did you actually get from doing industrial engineering and management to global development studies? What did that journey actually look like and why? Well, uh, well, it's quite a long story. I, I try to keep it short. But anyways, Brazil was important there. I went when I when I got my first grant for my dissertation, I bought one way ticket to Brazil to Rio de Janeiro or Rio de Janeiro. And uh, had organized uh, one position there to be a visiting scholar there in the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, Energy Group of Energy Economics in the Institute of Economics there. And um, I wanted to study bioenergy. And, and I had a very, very general idea of what I wanted to do. Um, the long part in this story is the, kind of the general motivation that, that I have for my research in general and my, well, kind of perhaps life project, one could say, uh, which is, as many of you share with me, this kind of a general concern of trying to do something when living in this age of crisis, multiple crises, exacerbating crises, environmental, social, and all that. So I very ingeniously thought bioenergy would be one of this general type of solution. Uh, and I went there to study bioenergy. And quite soon, I, I realized that it's a bit more complicated thing than I had thought. And as I didn't have really much orientation in my dissertation project, I've been thinking it afterwards that, that I kind of established as my guiding principle when I was kind of exploring different frameworks and all this this kind of um, general guideline of directing my readings towards those kind of ideas and thoughts and, and theories that somehow make me understand better the society, the, well, realities in general. And then I ended up actually reading many different literatures. Uh, I ended up establishing myself somehow in institutionalisms, which was the organizational institutionalism or in the long name, organizational theory in the sociology of organizations. Well, nobody uses that anymore. Anyways, it was social sciences, very much uh, talking about different meanings, meaning structures, 
legitimation, uh, all these kind of things. And I actually noticed that the literature was somehow based on one book. These, well, one book was somehow there underneath it all. And that was Peter Burgess and Thomas Lukman's The Social Construction of Reality. And I bought that book and I read it and that changed really much what, what I'm what I was doing and what, what I started to do then. And then I read Alfred Schutz's work, Peter Bergen and Thomas Lukman were students of Schutz. And I, I went reading them, the structures of the life world and, and all that. And, and that really kind of, I've been in the deep dive since that. Uh, but in Brazil, I then started to see differently things not only there, but also in Finland and, and all that. Uh, I, well, I was living in different places. I was, my, my dissertation project was quite fragmented. Uh, I got an orientator finally, and uh, I went married and, and all that. And um, I was married to a Brazilian who was, who was critical economist. And I actually, in the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, I, I, I got to get into critical economists' uh, circles. And um, there I started to understand more, more, more about this, well, economics, but also uh, how, how to, be, to be critical against uh, capitalist structures and all that. So it's this long, multifaceted process through which I've been shifting towards this kind of uh, critical issues, uh, development studies, all that. Uh, I met Markus Kröger one long time ago as a student studying Brazil, and uh, we've been doing cooperation since quite early on. Thank you so much, Osi. And I mean, it's it's so good to see, like you know, this journey, especially because it is such a, a different sort of starting point to to where you are now and and how you got here. But so I guess coming off of this, like, what kind of things have you been working on now, or like are, are working on lately? Um, well, uh, I have had quite distinct two legs in in my in my research since early on. Um, as I said, I I started with I have this engineering background. And um, actually, my master's I did in engineering, physics, and mathematics. So it's not not just in industrial engineering and management. Um, but even though I'm deconstructing, I have been deconstructing a lot of this engineering world. We some debris is still there. And and when I when I was reading the literatures in like social science literatures, institutionalism and, and all that, I started to see that there is uh, there are some things missing. And that was materiality. Institutional theory didn't really have materiality there. And the focus of my research was, was clearly also material. So I, I needed to start actually doing, constructing those, conceptualizing uh, new things to new concepts to the, to the theory. And that was, that was, uh, Principally, materiality. So, so, so I, I saw that there was a great need for my PhD, uh, for my dissertation. 
but also like in more generally there was need to to uh, create new concepts with which it would be possible to study such phenomena such kind of social material phenomena um anyways um and i saw that uh kind of i had the feeling that the literature of this institutionalism is no, no longer if it one day was like based on on this social construction of reality and I, I saw that there was too little meaning too little knowledge and too little materiality in the literature so that was kind of one big field that i i started to do the conceptual work for for that literature and uh, i went to a few of these egos conferences to present my my ideas in the institutional tracks but then well i defended my my dissertation and then i i started a postdoc in switzerland in geneva and there i kind of thought that being entirely a theoretical or conceptual scholar is, is is not good idea because one one need to have more empirical stuff i had studied bioenergy biofuels in, in particular in, in the dissertation but then i i uh, expanded to land use in general or, or especially agroecology and actually when i me and my ex-wife were in, in in geneva postdocs there we we started to build the project on agroecology and that was actually uh after two years i was there i was working on that big project application for almost a year and there actually i i, I dived into the agroecology literature there anyways since 2013 14 i've been i've been having this uh kind of agroecological uh leg quite strongly in my research and more more lately uh i i've also also started to look more on this kind of agro agroforestry stuff so conceptually uh things based on alfred Schutz work I call it social phenomenology today. And I've been participating in those international Alfred Schutz circle conferences in different places. And um, perhaps the the biggest stuff, biggest arguments, biggest uh, contributions that I've been trying to do is, is this uh, to conceptualize this kind of um, insidious change cumulative type of change that is inherent in, in, in the continuation of normality. That's kind of different change than any what extant literature talks about evolutionary change or radical change or all that. So that's that's one big thing. I haven't haven't had the breakthrough yet of publishing it in um, elite journals yet, but but I've been publishing some some things in in good journals, but, but not in the, in the best journals yet. But I'm, I'm a very, I think I'm a very stubborn, stubborn scholar. I've been doing this in a quite 
precarious conditions. Of course, we we are all all quite precarious, but I think I had I had quite precarious moments <laughs> in living in middle of Finland, Brazil, China, and Switzerland, and all that. Wow, it sounds like your research has taken you to so many different places. Um, I can't even imagine, you know, what the connections are between China and Brazil and like all these places that you've situated yourself and done research. But one thing that you'd brought up earlier that I was hoping that you could unpack for us a little bit more is, I mean, I know agriculture, I know ecology, but really what is, what's agroecology? What does that mean in practice? Well, it depends who you ask, but typically it's, uh, well, it's kind of argued to be science, practice, and, and movement. Uh, but it's it's just, uh, I think, a very general name for this kind of ecological way of, of doing agriculture. It, it affects the whole, whole food system. If you would really transition to agroecology, it would change not only land use in a way that um we wouldn't use any more those pesticides and we wouldn't wouldn't have monocultures and, and, and all that but also it would change the, the relations between um, farmers and peasants and, and consumers and, and all these big chains would radically transform through agroecological you could say revolution. It would be a revolution with just minor changes. Wow. I mean, that is a huge, huge thing. And I mean, it seems like a very fundamental shift in views from where we're at with this sort of, uh, in some instances, extractivist, but certainly uh, industrial push of agriculture around the world. Um well, I'm devil's advocate, what I'm sure people who are in favor of the current system would ask, like, well, you know, we've been able to grow so much food with uh, the current system. How how could switching away from pesticides and monocultures still be able to feed everyone? Which, I mean, sorry, but it's like, I feel like I've got to, like, even though I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's important to do that thing to to ask about whether, whether it's possible really to to feed the world. Uh, with ecological agriculture, oh, it is possible. It's um, actually uh, monocultures are very inefficient. You need lots of energy to uh, cultivate, lots of energy. And not all that, but we are gradually, actually quite fast, also degrading soils all over the world. So, so we, are, we are not able to continue even industrial agricultural practices it's a it's a very very fundamental thing um there are many instances well at local levels like mostly but we can see that agricultural production is also in terms of productivity it's it's better better than, than industrial agriculture and i think it's very these are very, very big, big kind of things because the modernization of agriculture has been so strongly pushed. And what we can, what we can talk later, maybe, uh, what I want to kind of emphasize always that there are some actors that have done the pushing, and, and that's um, 
well, in terms of industrial agriculture, I think it's quite clear that it's uh, it has been the U.S. corporations and state, of course, that, that have been, and that that's part part of the development studies part, uh, the the global, the geopolitical geopolitical level. But anyways, so in many instances, we can see that that um, is kind of multicultural pluriculture is is more productive than monoculture. It's just uh, not scaled. It's it has been scaled like forced, you like forced scaling in in Cuba, for example, and, and they they have had good results, but also not not. It's not the simple transition towards agroecology, as for example the Sri Lankan case shows, where they banned fertilizers, and I I think perhaps pesticides as well. Top-down decision and, and uh, outcome was a catastrophe in, in production. It doesn't work like that. I have I have done done research on Brazil in this, and uh, the Bolsonaro government was actually very strongly. I think it's interesting. We we wrote one paper we published in Journal of Rural. Um, but it's no third, third word quarterly. So where we argued, for instance, that agroecology had been a serious alternative in Brazil because because of the urgency, and the priority that Bolsonaro had in in dismantling uh, the structures that that supported agroecological production. Um, and one one characteristic thing, for example, in Brazil had been that they have these councils, different councils uh, where actually social movements have lots of space and power. So these councils, especially this kind of concia, this this largest council, I don't know what that would be in, in English, um, that was dismantled in the first day that, that Bolsonaro took office. And that indicates of the importance that these kind of councils that were very important to support agroecological policies and decision making. So this kind of dismantling of the very first day, these kind of structures that support agroecology, they show that it, it has been seen by the at the camp, the industrial camp as an important or serious alternative. Thank you very much for giving us a little bit of insight into what agroecology is. And you cited some very interesting cases and examples, but I was wondering if you would uh, bring us in a little bit deeper to some of the in-situ research you've done in agroecology and give us a little bit of a sense of place um, and what you've seen happening on the ground. Well, yes. Um, actually, I have to have to say that uh, my my empirical field research is quite thin. I I, I I've been visiting uh, places in Mozambique, for example, but um, and and Brazil in different different places, mostly in Brasilia and and well Rio Rio de Janeiro. But I have to say that I'm still quite conceptual, and so I I, I try to I use others empirical research very much 
in my work. And I think my strongest part is to conceptualize, to bring in, to kind of uh, combine, theorize, perhaps bigger lines, more general issues. For instance, um, as I mentioned earlier that, that uh, I, I study agro, agroforestry, that that's that one thing. Uh, it's obviously agroforestry for me is, is part of agroecology. And uh, with Markus Kroger, we, we published one, an article in Journal of Rural Studies about, about agroforestry transitions, and, and we kind of conceptualized different pathways, different uh, transitions, and, and kind of qualify what what qualifies as a, as a good transition, what qualifies as a, as a bad transition, what qualifies as an, as an ugly transition. And uh, so, so kind of I have to admit that I don't have that much deep empirical stuff in those. I do have some, but much less than most scholars that, that study these things. But I, I think we, we need to have different roles in, in these discourses. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you know, I, I find pops up quite a bit i mean in in field work and generally talking with people especially people in uh vastly different disciplines or or outside of academia um emphasizing that you know it's it's not a single silver bullet answer that one person can provide it's everyone kind of has their role and it's it's coming together um as it should be i mean because if one single person could have the answer well i mean that's usually what uh people in favor of neoliberalism claim is that they've got the answer for everything and it's neoliberalism. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that's a, a very, very fair statement and approach, but like with this, could you like walk us through a bit like this good, the bad and the ugly ah, of, uh, of agroforestry and agroecology? Cause I mean, you know, if, if we're talking about it, like you think like, okay, yeah, you know, transitioning to agroecology, that should be a good thing. Um, but how how could it be good, bad, or ugly? Like, what's the kind of differentiations here? Um, yeah, just a good question. Uh, it's um, <clears throat> kind of the general concern that I have um, is well, what that I of course share with, with many others is that these these kind of good things like agroecology, agroforestry, this uh, may be used. Um, for good ends or for not not that good ends because well it's always these concepts are always uh abstract in the way that many empirical things fit in them they are they are all always there's lots of ambiguity in concepts so irrespective of what you do you can label you try to label it as something good you can try to label um some kind of climate smart agricultural practice that is actually not not good for local people for soil for for many things you can try to label it as uh, as something agroecological for example uh, and if you succeed to do that it doesn't really matter that this, this is real really agroecology or not but you, you manage to do it anyways so in the so we have this concern that, uh, for example, in Amazon, there are different instances where old-grown forests kind of, kind of 
not pristine, but primary forests anyways, they might be, and they, well, some of them have been uh, transformed into, for example, acai plantations, which is a not good development. It doesn't have good impact. Uh, it's, um, I think that if we, of course, of course, we have to have some indicators for what is, what is a good in, but and what is not. But I take biodiversity as one very important um, kind of uh, dimension in looking at these things. So when you have an amazingly rich biodiversity spot and you change it to something that is much less biodiversity rich, then it's it's not, not a good thing to do. One one argument in this paper, for example, was that um, when you're wanting to judge what kind of transition it has been, you have to know the starting point. If it's a pasture, if it's a if it's a degraded pasture or degraded soil or something like that, almost anything you do, it's it's somehow good, almost. But, but especially if you if you start an agroforestry there, it should be in many dimensions a good thing to do also what i've been arguing in, in all my papers and that somehow that's this rural development uh i think it's very important to be able to look at the system level at least larger level than a plot or farm or, or something like like that and, and when for example some agroforestry stuff may be used to fortify or to strengthen these industrial agricultural practices some some for example some uh some farms use um different bushes to as a feed for for animals and that's more efficient than than um grass but that's at the higher level this only strengthens the pattern uh, through which, um, for example, rural producers differentiate. You, you have those those biggest that that drive others away, and and, and in the end, the land concentrates to to the rich and. Other smaller producers are driven to semi-urban areas, favelas or slums or something like that. So, kind of, it's very important to be able to map those those um, road patterns that these farming techniques or different practices then then either help to strengthen or weaken. Thank you for unpacking that a little bit, but I was wondering if we could actually, earlier you talked about the social phenomenological side of things and kind of the conceptual side of the research. And I was wondering, how do these things actually link up? Like, how do you bring the two into conversation? Well, that's a good question. Um, actually, for quite a long time, I, I didn't really try to bridge them in any how. Uh, so they were quite separate, I think. For example, I, I wrote about one paper, uh, this kind of Xuqian, from a Xuqian point of view, um, this virtualization of life worlds, like that 
what does it so what if if we are we are 10 hours in in a looking at the small screen so so what does it what does it do for our lives and all that so so for example that that paper published in human studies didn't have anything to do with with really agroecology um perhaps later on then i, I i've been starting to to bridge them a little bit, bit perhaps also because i've been presenting some of my conceptual stuff in in conferences such as the world ecology research network conferences trying to get those uh cumulative changes that that kind of my 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 major concept maybe is the, the cumulative sociomaterial change so i've been trying to to discuss that against the backdrop of, of global political ecology or political economy um but i think i, I i'm still doing it but one one paper that i published in globalizations i looked at the concept of saying business as usual and what does it mean actually i tried to bridge that social phenomenological insights of cumulative social material change that let's say the business as usual uh entails not only continuation of something but also these changes cumulative changes and that's of course one reason why why people say that business as usual is not an option, especially today when when we are facing the all the climate crisis and biodiversity destruction and all that. So I discussed that against these uh, also geopolitical aspects, different uh, practices such as, um, for example, neoliberalist practices, if, if they continue, what happens kind of if, if different industrial agricultural practices continue, business as usual, what they what they mean. But that was also quite in a quite conceptual level. So I think it would be needed somehow to also make sense of these quite abstract issues in a more concrete, abstract uh, neighborhoods, such as those discussions in, in in the field of global development studies. That is really important and, and a fascinating thing to bring in. And I mean, bringing out these these conceptualizations and yeah, having the more concrete abstract. But even a, a point that I, I want to bring in and talking about like business as usual, how usual is that business really? Because I mean, I feel like, you know, part of the whole neoliberal thing has been to make us feel like it's business as usual. But it's actually, in the grand scheme of things, and even within, like, say, living memory of people today, it's a pretty new thing. It's pretty unusual. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Change fast, even though they, they change uh, cumulatively because of the large, massive scale of things. And, of course, the, kind of the, the thing with the business as usual is, is that uh, it is business as usual to some people. Uh, for example, those large well giant corporations in different uh, fields well we know that almost nearly every sector has been dramatically consolidating in the last two decades something like that so if those companies just keep doing what they do that is they keep growing and eating smaller companies 
If they do business as usual, it certainly changes drastically the lives of many people and many organizations as well that, that are being eaten with the so-called uh, market economy or free markets. They are not very free. And yes, kind of the thing is that there are different levels. I've been conceptualizing this through this uh, nestedness of, of, of different levels, nested system of institutions. So meaning that uh, higher level of higher structure, higher level of institution, higher level of practice uh, constitutes a context for activities in the lower level. For example, the EU constitutes a context today for the Finnish, Finnish society. Of course, it doesn't mean that it determines what is happening in the lower level. And it also doesn't mean that it, it constitutes it all. Of course, the lower levels have always, always autonomies. And of course, the lower levels also help to constitute the larger level. But but anyways, they are hierarchically different. The other determines, other provides much stronger frames rather than vice versa. But one of the things in, in this cumulative change, cumulative social material change that I, I've been talking about, perhaps I, I, I open it a little bit. Um, I earlier said that I needed the concept of materiality to be able to to explain what I thought important and what I what I actually what I mean with this cumulative nature of change is that um, even in the like a perfect reproduction of social practices, people do exactly the same than before. Things change, and this is because we need energy, we need different materialities for life. For practices, need different things. Uh, I have been using this uh, example of car manufacturing. If a car factory keeps doing exactly the same thing, it requires something. It requires different materialities, energies, which cars are being built, and then cars uh, are built up in societies when the factory keeps doing its business. So I conceptualized material in two ways to this kind of very general categories, which is loose matter. In this case, is uh, both those energy and materiality that go into building the car, and then the car itself and the factory, all this that doesn't change in the reproduction that is stuck matter in, in this conceptualization. But then you may ask, I, I drive a car every day, and it doesn't change really. I, I I drive it. I drive it to work. I it doesn't change. It was loose matter. It's not loose matter for me. Yeah, it's not. It's very important to be able, I think, to conceptualize materiality relationally uh, in social sciences, so that we should look at materiality from the perspective of social practices. So from social practice of uh, car manufacturing. The car is loose matter, but from the practice of car commuting, the car is stuck matter. Of course, these are very general concepts. It's a very general kind of um, things. But when using these, I, I, I think it's very simplistic even uh, notions or concepts. I, I think we can somehow perhaps better grasp these cumulative and insidiously kind of uh, 
advancing changes such as, such as uh, a buildup of carbon dioxide or even um, more purely social phenomena such as uh, rural exodus or even population growth. But uh, yeah, I think this social practice level is, is very good to be able to grasp the, the social as activity. Well, I'm definitely <laughs> interested in hearing more about that. So I don't even want to stop you with a question in between. Tell us more. I want to hear more. <laughs> All right, good. So yeah, one one of these uh, also kind of basic things that I've been arguing, of course, I'm I'm not the first, first one, of course, but but I've been gathering different uh, well notions again from Schutz, Alfred Schutz. He was was one of these actually actually he was he was in a dialogue with American pragmatists who have a very very good stuff um so in general the kind of the idea that the social uh is is not something it's, it's not an object in 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 such but it's a flow it's a fluid it's a it's an ongoing thing that we are constructing and reconstructing and deconstructing and all that. I think that what I say to my students or sometimes at least is that um, we can think if, if the social feels like a very solid thing, then think about that if we would all stop doing what we do, we wouldn't do what we do in our ordinary life. What would happen? It would change everything in the social uh so so in that that sense um it's only in the activity only the activity is what grants the social it's it's uh kind of status and it's importance um so that's that's one thing it is a very very kind of process view but if we think about these process ontologies oftentimes it's um that in terms of materiality, for example, all material is seen to flow, like it's all flow. But of, of course, if we look at the longer temporal times, longer temporal uh, periods, we can see that everything flows. But if we see from the social practice view, if we see, if we look at those established patterns of human activities, it's quite clear that some things flow such as the, the food, the metabolist, the metabolistic stuff, uh, or internal and external metabolism. But some things are quite solid. Our bodies are quite solid. Our spoons, forks, cups, uh, those are quite solid. They don't just flow. Um, so it's very important to be able to, in, in order to, grasp this cumulative phenomena, I think it's very important to, to grasp both the flows and the, the solid stuff, but all, always in relation to social practices. I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that I've been trying to argue in some of the papers. So in this conversation, we're talking about a lot of like really big flows and things that happen, you know, they're happening here, but it also at the same time can kind of feel like these things are happening out there. And I know one of the biggest challenges in 
um, tackling the climate crisis and some of these bigger issues of environmental destruction is how to actually make this relevant in people's day-to-day -day lives and how to bring it back to something that is actionable on a personal scale. So could you tell us a little bit about how you make these connections and build these bridges? Yeah, actually, good good question. It's um actually I want to say about that. Um, yeah, this actually this nestedness is important to be able to understand what is their life world, what they experience here now. It's very different thing than what the larger structures, how they evolve, and how, what they impact. Um, and actually, one very central concept that has been actually quite much neglected in social sciences is is the concept of relevance. Indeed, that, that how do these things, how do these large changes really affect people? How do people experience them? And Alfred Such was uh, he has one one book on, on the concept of relevance, and he has provided some good good understanding of, of what what it what it really means for for people. That uh, one this kind of a categorization of relevance, for example, that that, that I wrote in this uh, environmental sociology. Uh, article of mine is that uh, we have different zones of relevance that Alfred Schutz uh, conceptualized. For example, the zone of primary relevance. All that is somehow that we are able to somehow control or at least to which we have impact in the field of zone of primary relevance. That's something that we can dominate somehow, this, this zone. Of course, it, it changes from people to people, but but then we can think of this zone of decreasing decreasing relevances and and climate change and all this. They typically they and they are in the, they situate in the zone of absolute irrelevance. But Alfred Schutz says that don't affect their lives anyway, or at least they think so. So one of the biggest questions in social sciences in the kind of environmentally concerned social sciences is that that how to how to make these big destructive patterns somehow relevant for people in the same way that their salary is important and them or in the same way than and going to toilet is important for them. This is very, very big question and not not they are not not evident answers to that is such an important point, I think. Uh, it, it's always something that I, I think is a a big problem for our field. For I mean, I feel social sciences in general. How do you actually bring out that relevance for the quote unquote average person? Uh, I mean, I I always think of uh, this British comedy duo uh, Mitchell and Webb. They had a, a thing which was an environmentalist talking to like just your your average sort of conservative UK person and them asking them like, wait, so just tell me what it is in terms of stuff. Like how many uh, endangered species of birds in Bangladesh am I killing by taking my car down to the shop? Like and when, when, like, when can we keep doing this until we stop having all the wonderful stuff? Um, yeah. But, but anyways, like I, I feel so bad because we're, we're getting into such amazing areas and i feel like we've just sort of started scratching the surface and especially with this really wicked problem of how to make it relevant for people's daily lives but we've taken a bunch of your time today and we're really grateful to have you on and um unfortunately we're, we're getting towards the end of our time uh, but at the end of every episode there's something we'd like to do 
We like to do stuff here. Indeed. And although there are three of us, and I mean, I, I love the good, the bad, and the ugly, so I have to say we're not going to have a, a standoff in a graveyard, but uh, we will do something else. What are we going to do? I don't understand. What are we going to do? What do we have to do? It's time for <gasps> the question. Ah, wah, wah, wah. Question time. So at the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests the question. Our listeners, they're they're fascinated. They want to be able to do something. They want to become engaged. Uh, just what's something that our listeners could do in their daily lives? Could be reading something, could be thinking about something, could be getting engaged with something. But do you have any advice for our listeners? Well, the question really is important. Um well, I think there are very many things that people can do in, in order to somehow to address this predicament that we are in. If I may say, perhaps one, well, you can always meditate, that that's a good thing. But that's, um, I think one of these, one of these big things is that the human condition today, at least in this, in the Western hemisphere, is such that uh, we are being educated to not understand the social structures as part of which we uh, live and act and this also means that we take for granted and we, we take for granted many many things and we also take for granted uh, or we tend to date I'm not saying that everybody would but kind of we tend to take things as they appear to us. And uh, we always have some kind of lenses on. We always have our uh, worldview on. The worldview is the lens. And we are being just educated in this very natural science dominated basic education. In, uh, that I see that this is dominating at least the Western hemisphere. We are being told that we don't have any lenses on. And that's one of the big problems. So so by starting, by kind of reflecting the what kind of worldview lenses I have on, that would be one good thing to do. And there are different things, for example, the meditation, that's one meditative practice, whatever it is. Uh, it's may help seeing those lenses. And that kind of thing, that kind of act could become a seed of larger disruption through which you could then start seeing kind of the inadequacy, the, let's say, the problems in the structures in which we are. And then you could end up joining the social movement or, or organizing differently or changing them. So that's that's maybe my kind of a little social phenomenological answer to this. Thank you so much for such a wonderful answer to the question. And if our listeners are interested to read more of OC's work, we will make sure to um, at least 
link the good, the bad, and the ugly article that we have referenced a few times in the show notes. And we'll also put up a link to his profile so you can find all the amazing work that he has engaged with. Yes, Osi, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's such a pleasure. I mean, always a pleasure to get to talk with you, but really uh, a pleasure to have you on here so our, our listeners can join in too. Um, we'd love to have you back sometime in the future to uh, to dive even more into this. And, and you know, as as you get into all these new areas also. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you really much. I, I hope I, I made sense of something, <laughs> something that uh, it was really, really great to talk with you guys. Hope to come back here one day. Thank you once again to Aussie Olinaho for coming on and having this wonderful, engaging conversation with us. Please join us next month for another fascinating conversation. From the cool late summer of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophie Hagelani Albov, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.